Do you pray, pray with me at this time? Father, we come to you now, and as Psalm 90 says, we pray that you would teach us to number our days, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Would you do that now through your word and by the power of your spirit in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 31, David says, I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand. Now, I think that those words should be comforting and encouraging to us. But are they? Our times are in his hands, which means they are not in our hands. Maybe you feel that you should have more of a say, more control over your life. Like I might say, I should determine, or I should determine how the life and times of Matt Rudd plays out. Or perhaps you don't really trust God based on your life experiences or for whatever reason. We might think that we would feel better if we were holding the building plans for our lives. A while ago, I bought a big Lego Star Wars ship set for me and my boys to build over a holiday. And we spent hours poring over an instruction manual with about 500 steps in it, taking thousands of pieces that don't appear to make anything coherent at first and fitting them together piece by piece until our masterpiece was complete. And David Gibson tells of a very similar experience with his kids, and he observes how our lives are like this, saying, our lives are made up of so many different pieces, people, events, circumstances, times, places, that are all being locked together to make our individual stories. Sometimes we don't see the significance of a tiny piece of the story until later on. Often there seems to be a brick missing, and it's hard to keep going without it. Or there's tremendous joy and satisfaction as a particular piece clicks into place and crowns a part of our life project. The difference between real life and Lego construction, however, is that we are not the ones with the instruction blueprint laid out in front of us. God is. We have individual pieces in our hands, and God has given, a, given us enough explanation to set us building, but only he has the master plan. We are building our lives, and we have an idea of how we want to do it and how we hope it will turn out, but there's so much about the shape of our lives, the shape our lives will take, that we cannot control. In light of this truth, I think the main question becomes, will we trust the Lord? Will we trust the Lord even when we can't see the whole picture? Or can't put all the pieces together or control the outcome. Can we confess that our times are in his hands? And will we believe that his hands are good? Please take a Bible and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we continue looking at this ancient book of Sometimes perplexing wisdom, 
which surprisingly resonates in so many ways in our world today with us. We've slowly gone through the first two chapters where Solomon has declared that life is full of vanity. It's fleeting, frustrating, elusive, like smoke or steam. It, it slips through our grasp. Then, in describing his life like as an epic quest, Solomon offered himself as a vivid cautionary tale, you might say, on the vanity of wisdom, pleasure, and work. All of that inevitably disappoints us. It falls short. Because we live in a fallen world, under the sun, under sin and the curse of sin and death, and yet, even here, he says that God has given us so many blessings for us to enjoy for a time. And with his quest concluded, Solomon begins chapter 3 quite differently, bursting into poetry. Look, at verse 1 it says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And we'll read the rest of the poem in a moment. But the theme of it is clearly time. The word time appears 29 times in eight verses. Some versions say, for everything there is an appointed or opportune or right time. In other words, everything, good, bad, in between, happens precisely when it is meant to happen. It's the right time for it. Even, even the format of this passage as poetry reflects some of the reality of time, since time is structured and ordered and rhythmic and balanced and even beautiful. But what gives time its nature? Well, the creator, establisher, and giver of time, of course, which implies what I see as the first major point in Ecclesiastes 3, that God gives us our times. God gives us our times, both ups and downs, so accept it. God gives us or appoints us our times, both the ups and downs, and we need to learn to accept it. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, starting with, fittingly, a time for the beginning and a time for the end of our lives. It says a time to be born and a time to die. And then there's a time for everything else in between our start and finish. Now, in the poem, there's many opposites given here, like birth and death, weeping and laughing, love and hate, but not everything listed here is so cut and dried as good or bad. For instance, keeping silent or speaking. Both could be either positive or negative. Thus, this poem also shows us that life is complex. It's multifaceted. It requires wisdom to navigate. But there's a right time for it all. Even in our disordered world, there is order because of God. So, We'll read through it together. So there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down 
and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now working through this list step by step, it starts by saying that there are, there are lifespans and life cycles for human life and for plant life even. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Now today, if you're not into farming or gardening, you could say there is a time to start work and a time to finish work, a time to, to begin projects and a time to complete them. There's also, it says, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now that one may perplex us because obviously healing others is good, but when is the right time to kill? Hold that thought, we'll come back to that question. It also says there's a time to break down and a time to build up, or a time to tear down, a time to construct back up. My family is watching this dramatically unfold in our lives right now. As the home that we planned on moving into earlier this year ended up being too far gone to live in, so a couple months ago we watched a backhoe demolish it to the ground. And now the house is being rebuilt. It's a proper time for both. Verse 4 goes on. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It's, it's right and good for us to weep and mourn the sin, the brokenness, the death in this world. And it's right and good for us to, to laugh, to cheer, to, to dance with the joys of life. Don't forget that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, actually does both to us. Right? It, it first brings us to our knees as we mourn the weight and the wickedness of our sin, and then it lifts us up to experience and to celebrate the joy of our salvation. It's a time for both. Verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. That's speaking of, of clearing a field of stones for agriculture or gathering stones together for architecture. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That could be talking about sexual relations or just to affection and friendship, giving hugs. Verse 6, there's a time to seek and a time to lose. To, in other words, to search and to find or to quit searching and count our losses. Like Solomon actually just did. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. So there's time to, to hold on to something that you own, and there's a time to put it up on Facebook Marketplace or to take it to a thrift shop. Verse 7, there's a time to tear and a time to sew. In those days, people would tear their clothes in grief and then mend them later. 
There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's to shut up or speak up. And we know this all too well by experience, right? There are times that we should have stayed quiet, but we blurted out something dumb instead. And then there are times that we should have spoken up, but we didn't say anything to our shame. There have been times when someone else came alongside of us in our grief and just sat with us. And that silence, their silent presence meant the world to us. And then there are times when an encouraging word was spoken right at exactly the right time and just lifted our spirits and kept us going. It's a time to keep silence, a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Now, hate here doesn't likely refer to sinful hate. Remember that there are things that God hates. But sometimes our love and hate spills over publicly into peace and war. And so he ends with there's a time for war and a time for peace. We sophisticated, sensible, sanitized Canadians may think, how is there ever a time for war? So let's address this. When are right times to kill or hate or war? Because under Christian ethics, we believe that all human lives are precious, that we should love everyone, even our enemies, and that we're to be peacemakers, like Jesus was. Those are all true. But that doesn't mean that killing or war are always morally wrong. For example, God gives the state the right to bear the sword in order to enact some semblance of justice here on earth. Or in the Old Testament, there were wars that God himself deemed as justified or even necessary. Today, good-hearted Christians will disagree on to what extent war is ever justified now. Because we have further revelation from Christ, like that loving our neighbors or loving our enemies. But, I'll say this, both pacifism and what we call just war theory are legitimate Christian stances to hold. I'll just add this thought that in light of the wars raging in our world today, have your own kids barbarically killed and try to tell me that there is never a time for war. Of course, our own sin is going to horribly complicate the matter no matter what. But the fact remains that God's word says there's a time for war and a time for peace. And really, it's just another painful reminder of how flawed and broken life is here under the sun. Thank God that ultimately peace will win out and it will be the eternal state of our world. There's a time for everything. Now, I don't believe Solomon is just observing the ups and downs that time brings us and, and shrugging like, that's life for you. Life is full of ebbs and, and flows, so accept your fate. 
No, I believe that he's implying something more profound. He's implying that our times do not come from fate's hands, but from the Lord's hands. There is a right time for all of these things because they ultimately come from God. The, the regularities and rhythms of time are part of the grand tapestry that he's weaving throughout history. Therefore, we don't need to accept whatever season we're in just because some impersonal, inescapable force determined how, when, and where we'd be living. We can accept the seasons that we're in because they come from an all-powerful, personal, loving God. He has a plan. He fits all things together. He reigns over the ups and downs of life. We don't have control, but he does. And any time that we do have is a gift of his grace. Knowing this, we then feel a rightful responsibility to use the gift of time wisely or appropriately. In an episode of the Disney Plus series, Forky asks a question. The funky little spork from Toy Story asks, What is time? What is time? Another character answers him, Now is now. Stuff happens. Then it's later. <laughs> and it can... If you think about it, though, it can be really challenging to actually define time. Augustine once said that he knows what time is until he's asked to explain it. Karl Barth said that time is the form of our existence. To be man is to live in time. And to put it in the style of Ecclesiastes, we experience time as a vanity. Because time flies by. And it frustrates us with our fallen human limitations. Time is what wrinkles our faces, wipes our minds, and eventually stops our hearts. We can only truly accept our times when we acknowledge God as our creator and see even time itself is something that flows to us from him. And when we see that, when we see this, instead of being an enigma or a crushing burden, time becomes a blessing. And we, you can't stop time, you can't control time, but you can receive it and you can accept it with gratitude as the opportunity, resource, responsibility, and gift that it is. And Forky asks a question, Forky goes on, and I think he's on to something when he concludes that while the future and the past sound all right, these different aspects of time, he thinks he likes the now most because he gets to be with his friend now. If you look at the poem here, almost every item in the list involves some kind of connection with other people. It's very community-focused. So then we can think, in what ways might we use our time, our now, more responsibly to, to heal, to laugh with, to embrace, to encourage, 
to make peace, most of all, to, to love others around you. Jesus certainly set us an example of doing this. Entering our world, as Galatians tells us, at the fullness of time. In order to heal us, embrace us, and make peace between us and God. Then he, he waited on his father's timetable for when his time on earth would be finished. And at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In this, he demonstrated once and for all how great is his love for us. In due time, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then gathered his church together. But before he did that, right before, Christ warned his friends, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. And he talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon us. But God knowing the right time for everything has changed our lives forever. Why would we ever stop trusting him now? And if, if you haven't yet put your trust in him, maybe today is the day of salvation for you. You can come to him in this moment, the time that he's given you right now, and receive God's love and his friendship it's a time to mourn, a time to dance. Like Mourn your sin. And then laugh and dance when he casts it all away from you. It's a time for everything. However, as you listened to Solomon's poem on time, you may not sense the beauty in it right away. You may more hear an oppressive drum of either repetition or change, or both. On the one hand, the same things keep happening time and time again, endlessly cycling. On the other hand, no season seems to last forever, even very good ones. There's no permanence. So we think, well, how soon are our times going to change and we wind up in the opposite season of where we are now? David Gibson puts this so well. It says, we long for change in a world of permanent repetition, and we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change, and we strive to achieve it. And in it all, we are simply trying to make permanent what is not meant to be permanent, that's us, and by constant change, we are trying to control what is not meant to be controlled in the world. We think for that matter... If everything comes from God and not us, do our choices or actions mean anything? We can get pretty deterministic about this and despair over the tyranny of time. It's relentlessly marching on. Which is perhaps why Solomon moves on from his poem with the familiar question. In verse 9, What gain has the worker from his toil? What gain? Now, toil here, as we've seen, it's any human endeavor. In other words, everything that fills our time, everything we do. So, in such a timed world, does what we do really make any difference? What gain has the worker from his toil? Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
that sound familiar? Like, we heard him say that before. However, unlike earlier times he said similar, Solomon has another surprise in store for us here. Instead of giving in to depression like he did back in chapter 1, he goes, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Whoa, that's a new tone. Yes, God has given us toil to be busy with in our time, but now we see that even our repetitive and impermanent toil can be made beautiful. And so, not only does God give us our time, but also God gives us our toil, and he beautifies it. So enjoy it. God gives us our toil, and he beautifies it, or you could say he redeems it. So enjoy what he gives you to do. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Here, time isn't seen as an oppressive force, but a redemptive force. I give it time, and God will turn everything ugly and cursed around for our glory and his good. Sorry, our good or his glory. Did that, said that wrong. Solomon apparently had already seen this happen, though, before he uses past tense. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That's not delusional. Acting like everything broken is already undone or healed. That's trust. That God is already working things out and fitting them together. And that eventually everything will be made beautiful by our beautiful God. Now this may be difficult to believe. But it's only like the message of the entire Bible. That God is taking broken, sinful, ugly things and healing, cleansing, and beautifying them. It's redemption for you. And God's redeeming and sovereign power isn't something to dread or resent. And we should marvel at how beautiful and breathtaking his completed work is going to be. We sing in the hymn, Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Derek Kinder explains that our trouble isn't that life is either repetitive or changing, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and its subtle, intricate design. There is the kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time, and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of one creator. We only see a fraction. And Solomon talks about this limited knowledge we have in the second half of verse 11. So he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You get what he's saying there? God has put eternity in our hearts. In other words, there's something deep inside of us that longs for timelessness. We are bound in time but we grope after some reality beyond time. 
You ever wondered why it's so attractive to us to waste time or kill time? Blogger Elisa Riddell claims that wasting time actually makes us feel immortal. And that we bolster a feeling of eternity as we pour time down the drain. Act like time doesn't matter. God is the one who placed this inherent impulse for eternity in us. And yet, he simultaneously frustrates this impulse, preventing us from understanding everything. Like everything has a, has a right time according to God, but we can't decipher divine timing. That's what he's saying. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's like we've got part of one page of this huge instruction manual. We want access, but we have very limited access to God's big picture. That doesn't seem fair, we might object. And yet it is. God doesn't owe us anything. And if we grasped everything he grasped, then it could make us as much of a God as he is. Besides, if, if he let us in on how billions of lives and countless actions all fit together, being woven into this beautiful tapestry, I have a feeling it would make our limited physical minds literally explode. God's not being unkind by keeping us in the dark. That's just how life is for us as fallen humans. We live in this fallen, time-bound world. He lives above it. And this leads Solomon in verse 12 to conclude that I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. So in addition to accepting our place, we should enjoy our place in life under God. Now, that sounds a lot like what Solomon said at the end of chapter 2, where he said there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. We only have a, a limited amount of time on this earth, and God wants us to make the most of it. So he suggests here that, that we be joyful, do good, Eat, drink, and take pleasure in our toil. Us enjoying and taking pleasure in these things is a gift from God to us. It says this is God's gift to man. We struggle with time often because it involves receiving and then losing countless memories. Time passes us by fast. And yet even loss is evidence of a gift. Don't resent the gift. Right? We can't truly appreciate gift without loss. Time is thus a kindness. It's a mercy. So enjoy what we're given. Time really is our, our God-given context to, to do good and to enjoy what we do, our toil. So, question for you as you hear those verses, especially verses 12 and 13. Does this describe your life? If so, are you praising the Lord for it? 
And if not, what's got you down? I think it's normal to get depressed about the vanity of life. But that should depress us into dependence on the God who wants to fuel our joy. In James 1.17, right in the immediate context of trials, tests, and temptation, it says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So even in the trials of this broken world, fix your eyes on the many good gifts of God. Time is beautiful, and it's a vanity, because we can't grasp it all or control it all. The good news is that there is someone who does understand and who guides all our times. And when we don't have the full picture, we ought to look to the one who does. See, God works beyond our time and above our toil. So fear him. God works beyond our time and above our toil, so fear him. And this is something very interesting that Solomon does here. I want you to see it. So he's just talked about our toil, how frustrating it can be, and yet how enjoyable it should be. He then goes in verse 14, in direct contrast to our toil, being, being trapped in this straitjacket of time, consider God's work. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So you see, our toil is, is frustratingly fleeting. It seems endless, but it's over before we know it. Our achievements, our accomplishments, the fruits of our labor never seem to last. We don't have the time or the ability to perfect our work in beauty. But God is not like us. His work lasts forever. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. His work is sufficient and complete in and of itself. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. His work is final. God has done it. God's done it, and that's that. He's unstoppable. Now, does this not stand out in this book of just full of elusive vapor. It's hard to express more strongly the, the stability and the permanence of God's work. And notice the purpose behind all God's work. He says, so that people will fear before him. So when you see the word fear there, don't picture cowering in terror before him. Picture worshiping him in joyful reverence and holy Ah, like picture us being utterly astounded by what God can do. Our jaws dropping, our eyes widening, and then our praise exploding. That's the fear of the Lord. But you see here, if God is just some weak-willed, unpowerful, selfish, uncaring deity, then our times being in his hands really should worry us or distress us. But on the other hand, if God is this God who's described here, then it should be abundantly comforting. 
We have nothing to fear. We fear him. He is wise. He is good. He's got the whole picture in his hands. He's the the main architect of the building of our lives, every other life in history. He's the primary author of the story of our lives, and he knows where the story is going. In Acts 17, Paul preached that the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation, having determined allotted periods, that is, our times on earth, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so our places on earth, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So he he puts eternity in our hearts, but binds us within time in order to drive us to himself. That we would seek and find him and then then fear him. This beautiful truth sheds a different light on the familiar words of verse 15, where he says, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. That's not fatalism. That's contentment under God's sovereignty. And he goes on, God seeks what has been driven away. What does that mean? Well, the past is lost to us, right? As much as all our time travel movies expose our desire to, we can't change the past. Time gone by has been driven away from us like a leaf blown away by the wind. But it's not lost to God. He will seek after what's passed by and bring it to account one day. Nothing will be hidden from him, and nothing will be forgotten by him. Speaking of which, we hear all this about God giving us our time and our toil and him making everything beautiful and working beyond our time and our toil, but we may still feel uneasy because we look around our world and we just don't see it. There's so much deep evil and injustice running rampant. Well, guess what? Solomon felt this dissonance too. Yet he didn't change his tune. Why not? Well, it, has, it still has to do with time. And God's time not lining up with our time. Solomon wasn't naively ignoring the brokenness in the world. Look with it. Verse 16, as he continues on, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's probably pointing at both the political and religious places of power. So he's like, look at the palaces and courtrooms. There's wickedness instead of justice. And look at the temple courts. There's wickedness instead of righteousness. We can't relate to that at all today, can we? Like, of course we can. There's corruption, there's wickedness everywhere we look. In the halls of power. 
And that's only the tip of the iceberg in a world full of massacres and genocides. So, if we believe that God is giving us our times, what do we do with this fact of how things really are right now? The only thing we can do, have faith that God sees this too. And therefore, this is not how things will always be. Look at what Solomon says. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Final point for today. God writes all our wrongs in his time, so embrace ours. God will right all our wrongs in his time, thus we can still embrace our own times. In the midst of the wickedness of our fallen world under the sun, Solomon confesses his belief that God will judge everyone one day in equity and righteousness in due season. And the logic is this, that if there is a time for everything, for every matter and every work, then there is certainly a time for justice and righteousness to prevail. Also, like, if, if none of our work lasts forever, then neither can injustice last forever. Put another way, the times of our lives are not the only times there are. Praise the Lord for that. There will be a time when the wicked's time runs out and they have to come before the Lord. Do you see how, how God's judgment should actually be comforting to us in our world today? That there's a time to be born, a time to die, and there's a time for judgment. And believe it or not, that is a beautifully good thing. Because that will solve the problems of injustice, evil, pain, and suffering that plague us today. And since the righteous will be judged too, it means that our present actions and activities have meaning and purpose too. They will impact eternity. The way we live matters. And this is the ultimate good news for those with faith and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But this will only happen in God's timing, not in what we wish his timing would be. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Just as God sent Jesus to earth to bear God's justice, but in his timing, the Father will send Jesus back to earth one day to enact God's justice, but in his timing. No one knows the day or the hour that this will happen, but it will yet happen. In righteousness... Christ will judge and make war. And justice will be done once and for all. The curse will be removed. 
all of creation renewed. Every sinful way that we have tarnished his beautiful creation will be undone. And we, don't, we don't know all the details of how or when this is going to happen, but God's word assures us of this, so we take it on faith. We can't have it both ways, though. We can't beg God to right the wrongs of this world. And then when he does, tell him, how dare you? Or, why didn't you do it sooner? He's the only one with the whole blueprint. And his timing will be the best timing. Period. We wonder, though, why not now? Why isn't today the right time for total justice? It may be. You can pray for it. But why not now? Verse 18 hints at an answer, I think. It says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Derek Kinder comments, he says, our first need is not to teach God his business, but to learn the truth about ourselves, a lesson we are very slow to accept. Of course, we know that humans are more than mere beasts. We carry the image of God after all. Solomon's point here is to emphasize that we are creatures, not the creator. And in physical death, we might as well be equal to the animals. It says in 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. We acted as if we could be gods, and thus we die like beasts. Dust to dust. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Well, God knows, and we actually know more than Solomon knew now. Though even now, so much of the afterlife, what comes after death, is still a mystery to us. But death reveals the flimsiness of our lives. It's the, the gust of wind that topples our decaying trees. Verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. In other words, we need to learn to embrace our place. To embrace our times. It's not our fate. It's our lot. Given to us by a good and gracious God. Time is a a precious gift that we only have for a time. More than feeling guilty over how we may have used our time so far, we should feel blessed for the time we still have and challenged to use it wisely. Part of which includes rejoicing in or enjoying whatever God gives us to do in this life, in whatever season we're in, whether it's school or a job or housework or childcare or play or eating or resting in the right ways. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? 
And that last line simply means we don't know what the future holds. Like the saying goes, it's a really good thing then we know who holds the future. In the end, we must return to the critical question, will we trust him? Will we trust him with our todays and our tomorrows? As Keith Green once sang, it's dust to dust until we learn how to trust. May our joys, our sorrows, and our toil in our days compel us to trust him. We don't know exactly where everything goes, don't know the right order, we don't know why, but he does. And I believe, I hope you do too, that he will indeed make everything beautiful in his time. Remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo is lamenting how much evil was coming to a head in his days? And he tells Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Gandalf replies, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Everyone wishes our times would be full of peace and joy and love, but under the sun, they often aren't. And so Ecclesiastes tells us likewise, that's not for us to decide. Yet time is still given to each and every one of us. So what will we do with the time that is given to us? Let's pray. Father, teach us to redeem the time for the days are evil. And help us learn by your grace to trust you more and more each day. We give you our today, and we give you our tomorrows. In Jesus' name, amen.